for now, take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 17. We're going to be continuing on in our series through the book of 1 Corinthians and just picking up where we left off last week in verse 17. I'm going to begin reading there. I feel like the pages are, are slowing down, so most of you are there. I'm going to start reading verse 17 and then read down through verse 25. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Amen? For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? And where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God... And the world through wisdom did not know God, but it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Verse 25, I love this verse. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Amen. You know, this week when I was trying to figure out what I would call this particular message, I had it in my mind that I should call this message Old Time Religion. And then I thought better of that because I thought that in our current day and age, Anytime we hear something old time in the context of the church, half the people tune out automatically, and then the other half tune out automatically when you bring up the word religion. And so I thought, I don't want to lose you at the very beginning, so I'm not going to call it old time religion, even though I wanted to call it old time religion. So anyway, let's just call it old time religion. Really, I think the message in your bulletin says, back to basics, and that really is what this message is about. And I love the way that Paul, and I read verse 17 for a reason, to sort of set some context for the rest of the passage that we're going to study through this morning. I love that in verse 17, Paul sort of reminds us that he had a singular focus on the gospel. You remember last week we walked through that passage where where Paul reminded them about division in the church and why division in the church is sinful. And he talked through division in the church and told us to focus our attention on Christ. And then he gets to that end of that passage and he says in verse 17, that Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. That's all Paul ever did. Everything that Paul ever did when he taught always found its way back to the gospel. I was thinking about that this week, and I was thinking, you know, that just reminds me of another time. You know, how many of you grew up in churches where you went to church, and you knew, you knew that every week, without a shadow of a doubt, you were going to hear a clear presentation of the gospel, without a doubt. I mean, I want you to know that I really do try to be conscious of that 
In my sermon preparation, I heard somebody say years ago, look for the off-ramp in your sermon. No matter what it's about, try to find the off-ramp to the gospel and get to the gospel somewhere in your sermon. And I try every week to present the gospel in a nutshell or, or more than a nutshell every week. But I was just thinking this week that there seemed to be a time when you went to church and you knew there was going to be significant amount of time spent on the simple old gospel message. You know, that God is holy that man is sinful and fallen in sin and deserving of the wrath of God, but that God sent his own son Jesus to live as our perfect substitute, to die for our sins, to pay the penalty for our sins. And if you respond by believing in Jesus, confessing your sins and trusting him, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I mean, you, you couldn't go to church and not hear that. And I was thinking about that this week and and thinking, you know, that, that should be the, the focus of everything that we do. I think about Paul down in chapter 2. If you look real quick, just down the page or across the page of chapter 2, listen to it again, where he reminds them again of his focus on the gospel, where he says, And I, brethren, in verse 1, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or with wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God, verse 2, but I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's the only thing that he wanted to focus on. And he brought everything back to that. And this week, I listened to a lot of preaching. I, I always find myself tuning in somewhere to listen to somebody preach. And, and I, I do also try to tune in just so I know what's going on to all the, the bigger churches in the United States. I try to tune into churches I don't agree with, but that are popular and see what's going on there, just so I know. And this week, I, I, I went to a certain church that's probably the fastest, one of the fastest growing churches, certainly one of the most popular churches, and no doubt one of the most influential churches in America. And I just tried to listen to what they were preaching. What have they been preaching over the last few weeks? And I got some things here, and I listened. I didn't just take these from the titles. I listened to make sure... But there was a message about how God can take the dust of your life and breathe new life into it. Well, that's true. And another message about mis- or, or the danger of misunderstanding the dreams that God has placed in your heart. Another message about things that frustrate our faith and cause us to be held back. And then a message about the things that, 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 that we need to identify that are blocking the call of Jesus in our life to do the things that Jesus wants us to do in our life. And as I listen to these, I'm telling you, I'm trying not to have an overly critical spirit. And don't go hunt up what I'm looking for. I mean, you can if you want, and you can listen if you want. But as I was listening, I want you to know that I heard nothing about the holiness of God, nothing about the sinfulness of man, nothing about the substitutionary atonement of Christ or the, the, the need for man to respond to the gospel. Where's the gospel gone? Where's the gospel gone? And I think that we're confusing ourselves. Like, Listen to what I'm about to say because this has such practical application for us and, and, and as your pastor... These are the types of things that I'm concerned about. I think that we are complicating Christianity, filling it up with all sorts of things to the point where we don't even know anymore what it is that we should focus on if we mean to be a Christian. I mean, is it this? Or is it that? Or this pastor said I need to do this? Or this church is saying I need to do that? 
And Lifeway says I should study this. And Beth Moore says I should study that. And Priscilla Shriver says this. And Andy Stanley says that. And what in the world are we supposed to do with all of this information? And for me, I just want to say, like, my goal today is, I think what Paul's goal was, is to simplify things and say, just get back to the basics of the gospel in your life. Like, without the gospel, all that other stuff is meaningless anyway. And by the way, ladies, don't get mad at me. I know you just came back from seeing Beth Moore. I didn't mean that as a shot at Beth Moore. I spent that we overcomplicate this sometimes. What are the basics of the gospel? What do we need to know? What do we need to live by in our lives? And this is, I think, what Paul's doing in verse 18 down through verse 25 is he's just giving us the basics of the gospel. And so that's what I want to do this morning is just give you the basics of the gospel. Ask the question, what are the basics of the gospel? And just listen to what Paul says. So what are they? What are the basic things that Paul would have us to, to focus on when he says, I didn't want to do anything but preach the gospel. And then he goes on to expound what it is. Look at verse 18. The first thing I want you to notice is that he focuses on the message of the cross. The message of the cross. For the message of the cross or the word of the cross. Or, or you may have some other similar translation. But just this idea of the, what Jesus did at the cross. The message of the cross. Jesus paid the price for our sins at the cross. I mean, it's as simple as that. I already gave you a summary of it. God is holy, man is sinful. Every single sinner deserves to die and suffer the wrath of God for eternity. But God so loved the world that he sent his son who died on a cross. And when we place our faith in him, his holiness, his perfection is credited to our account. Our sin is credited to his account at the cross and we're completely forgiven. The message of the cross. But notice that that Paul divides people immediately based upon the message of the cross into two categories. Did you know that every person on the planet fits into one of two categories? I mean, you may think that in this day and age that, that we, we, we subdivide and hyphenate and do all these different things to categorize people, but really Paul says you're either one of two things. And he says the message of the cross in verse 18 is foolishness, first of all, to those who are perishing. So that's the first group. There are those people who are perishing. And notice that that's in the present tense. Those who are perishing. Paul doesn't say that it's foolishness to those people who will perish one day. He says it's foolishness to those people who are perishing. If, if you've rejected the cross of Christ, you are perishing. You're a dead person walking. I remember when I was in boot camp, we had to study... Uh, famous battles of the Marine Corps. One of the battles of the Marine Corps that we studied was the Battle of the Chosen Reservoir. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's worth a read if you, if you like history, but the Marines were surrounded at the Chosen Reservoir during the Korean War and surrounded by about 10 to 1, and it became such a famous battle because the Marines, of course, fought through odds of 10 to 1 and, and, and were able to fight their way out of the battle eventually win and, and find their way to freedom. But one of the things that makes the Chosen Reservoir story so amazing was the conditions that the Marines and otherwise the people on the battlefield were living through during that battle. And it was so cold that people were literally freezing to death without ever being shot or blown up. They were just freezing to death on the battlefield. And there's one particular story in a book that we were, had to read about an officer who went back to the 
uh, to the medical area, staging area, where they had set up tents far behind the front lines where the fighting was, and they would take the wounded people back there. And this particular officer went back to the tent one day, and he saw as he got to the tent that there was a man sitting outside, just sitting alone, and he was missing his entire lower jaw. It was just gone. And the man was just sitting there alone, looking around. And the officer went into the tent and he immediately went to the doctors and he said, there's a man out there. He's wounded. Why why is he sitting out there in the cold? He's freezing to death. What's going on? And the doctor said, no, we've already seen him. The only thing that's keeping him alive right now is that it's so cold that his wounds have frozen. The moment he comes inside, he'll bleed to death and die. I want you to understand that that's what it's like to be a person who's living, having rejected the message of the cross. You may still be drawing breath, but you're really already dead. You're already perishing. You're already gone. And that's what Paul's saying, the message of the cross. There's one category of people who are already perishing. And then he says the other category is those of us who are being saved. We're being saved. So if you've accepted the message of the cross, then you are being saved by what Jesus did for you. You've you've been saved by what Jesus did for you. Right now you're being sanctified by what Jesus did for you. And one day you'll be completed because of what Jesus did for you. You're being saved by the message of the cross. So one of two categories today in this room, every person in this room finds themselves in one of those categories. You are either right now perishing or right now you're being saved. There's no other categories. Secondly, when we're talking about the basics of the gospel, I want you to notice the wisdom of God that Paul begins to talk about. I have it highlighted in verse 21, just the words, the wisdom of God, but it begins really in verse 19, where Paul says, It is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. And that's a reference back to Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, chapter 29 where Israel's trying to figure out a way to get out of the predicament that they're in, and they've assembled all the thinkers, all the wise people, all the priests, everybody that they could to try to figure a way out. And God basically says to them, all your wisdom is of no account. The only wisdom that's going to get you out of this is the wisdom of God. And so he quotes that, and then in verse 20, he begins to just sort of explain it. And look what he says in verse 20. He asks three questions. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? And where is the debater of this age? And what Paul's asking here when he begins this discussion about the wisdom of God, he's basically saying, where are all your experts? Bring them to me. Where are all the people that are educated? Bring them to me. Where are all the philosophers? Bring them to me. Where are all the religious experts? Bring them to me. Because none of them has ever been able to give a satisfactory answer for the questions about life and the human condition. Do you realize that? That there's never been a good answer. In the wisdom of men, we've never been able to come up with an answer for who we are, what we are, where we came from, and why we are. There's never been an answer. I mean, just consider some of the answers that men have given. The popular answer of, of the humanist. The popular answer of the 20th century was to say, well, that you and I, when we try to answer the question of where did we come from, we just accidentally came from nowhere. I mean, isn't that what it boils down to? 
Let's just be honest. There's an old adage that says, out of nothing, nothing comes. Yet, the answer of men is when we say, where did we come from? The answer is ultimately, out of nothing, we have become. Which you ought to know, and I think you do know, that that's absolutely ridiculous. I love that the old preacher, one of my old uh, preaching heroes, Jerry Vine, said, if you can believe that, then you believe you can climb a 100-foot thorn tree with a wildcat under each arm and not get scratched. I mean, it's unbelievable. But this is the answer about our origins. We accidentally came to be out of nothing. And then there's the answer of why we are. I mean, forget about the answer of where we came from. What about the answer of why? What's this life all about? Why are we even alive? What are we doing here? When I was at seminary, I had to take a program, enroll in a program. They forced me into it. I never would have done it otherwise. Called the History of Ideas. Doesn't that just sound like something you really want to study? The History of Ideas. And the idea was that we would have to study and read all the great works of Western civilization. And we began all the way back in, before ancient Greece, but eventually arrived in ancient Greece. And we had to read all the works of Plato. And we had to study the teachings of Aristotle and Socrates and all of these people. And then we had to be introduced to all the philosophers who were born out of them and all of their ideas. And then eventually I began to read Francis Schaeffer and his understanding of all the great philosophers who came up through the history of Western civilization. And it, came, uh, it became pretty easy to understand that no human philosopher has ever been able to answer the question of why we're here. You can't figure it out through human wisdom. You can't figure it out through philosophies of men. It doesn't work that way. I love one description of philosophy is that philosophy is a blind man in a dark room searching for a black cat that isn't there. I mean, it's just never going to give you the answers. Yeah, write that one down. I should have gave that one to you in a PowerPoint. That's deep right there. A blind man in a dark room searching for a black cat that isn't there. That's what philosophy is. But the only way that we answer the question of who we are and why we are and where we're going is to look at the message of the cross. That's the only answer that makes any sense. Where did you come from? You came created in the image of God. Knit together in your mother's womb by a creator who knows you intimately. You were created by God. Why were you created? To live for the glory of God. To reflect the wisdom and majesty of God in His creation, created in the image of God. But we've all sinned, the Bible says, and fallen short of the glory of God. And so God reconciles us uh, us to Himself through Christ and through the message of the cross. And then where are we going? Well, depending on where, which category you find yourself in from the beginning, some will reject the message of the cross the answer and the wisdom that God has given, and they'll spend eternity in hell separated from God. And some will accept the message of the cross and spend eternity with Christ where there'll be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain, where all things will be made new. 
I mean, this is the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God. The world doesn't know God that way. Look at verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, and then he says, and this is sort of parenthetical, so you have to understand because otherwise it's a confusing verse. But he says, for since in the wisdom of God, and then he says, and the world through wisdom did not know God. The wisdom of the world does not lead to God. And he says it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Now this, as a preacher, is something that I love. When we're talking about the basics of the gospel, the last thing that I want you to notice this morning is just the simplicity of it. The simplicity of the gospel. Thank goodness because I have been accused a time or two of being a simple man and the gospel is a simple message. I mean, look at verse 21 through 25, where Paul, he just walks through this idea that the world struggles with the simplicity of the gospel. And don't get, don't get too hung up in all the language here. I know it's a little strange for us, but, but he's really just saying that the world, the Jews, the Greeks, they, they can't figure out the gospel because it's too simple for them. Verse 21 it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Verse, 20, verse 22, for Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The Jews struggled with the message of the cross because they were looking for something else. You realize that when Jesus showed up, he didn't fit the mold of what they were looking for. You know what they wanted? They, they wanted a king who would come riding on a horse, waging war against their enemies and conquering their enemies and raising Israel back up to a place of prominence in the world, setting up an earthly kingdom again. They were waiting for the restoration of a kingdom looking for an earthly kingdom, and instead they got a servant who washes the feet of his disciples, who stood silently before his accusers, who allowed himself to be butchered on a cross rather than calling down legions of angels and wiping out every sinful person standing there. And they said, this couldn't possibly be what we've been waiting for. Not this guy. They were wanting something more. And then the Greeks looked at this and said, how could God kill His own Son and save anyone? It makes no sense. They were wise. They were debaters. They were philosophers. And they'd been studying what it meant to live and what it meant to be. And they were saying, this just doesn't make sense to us. How this sacrifice of one man, this death of one man, could possibly reconcile mankind to God. And basically what the Greeks were saying was the same thing as the Jews were saying. And they were saying, no, we don't accept this. We need something more. Like that was at the root of all of it. The Jews said, no, we need something more. The Greeks said, no, we need something more. And God gave us the message of the cross. A few weeks ago, maybe a month and a half or so ago, I told you a story from Numbers chapter 21. Anybody remember that? Okay, now good, I'll tell it to you again. 
I'll refresh your memory. And there were people in the camp, the children of Israel were coming up into the wilderness and they did what Israel did and what we do. And they began to complain about their situation. Is this ringing a bell yet? All right. And, and because they were complaining against Moses and they were saying, take us back to Egypt. We don't want to live out here. We don't want to eat this stinking manna anymore. We don't want any of this stuff. And God became angry and sent fiery serpents into the camp. Now you remember? And so everywhere in the camp, amongst all the people of Israel, there were these serpents in the camp. And just imagine what it would have been like to be there. Like, imagine that, ladies, you go to to make your dinner for your family and you, you take the basin that has... The, 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 the water in it and you're preparing to wash it and you open up and you're snake bit. Imagine your little child pulling back the blanket on his bed and snake bit. Imagine that you step down off the bed in the morning. First thing, your foot hits the ground and snake And so all throughout the camp, people are being struck by fiery serpents. And they're dying. And they go to Moses and they say, please, plead with God that He'll take this away from us. Please, ask Him to take this away and heal us. And and God instead says, Moses, now I've heard the people, but make a bronze serpent, lift it up on a pole so it can be seen throughout all the camp. And then go tell the people to just go look at the serpent if they're bitten. And if they look at the serpent, then they'll be healed and I told you to imagine what it would have been like to hear that I mean just imagine a a mother coming into her house and there's her husband laying on the bed and his legs are swollen and he's sweating and his colors go she says I just got the news if you if you'll go and look, if you'll just go and look, there's this bronze serpent Moses put up on a pole. If you'll just go and look, you'll be saved. And he says, oh, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. I studied philosophy in Egypt. I'm a learned man. I'm not going to look at a bronze serpent. And he dies. And she goes into her son and he's laying there. So, son. Please just get up and go look. Just go look. How could that possibly heal me? It doesn't make any sense to me. There's got to be a better way. Mom, there's got to be a better way. He's dead. This is just too simple. Jesus said the same thing as the cross is the same thing unless the Son of Man be lifted up. Just as the Son of Man, or just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Those who looked in will be saved. Now think of this for yourself. Think of this if you're in this room and you've ever just struggled with this idea of the gospel. The simplicity of it. The foolishness of it. And that's not my word, that's the Bible's word, right? The foolishness of the message preached. Because in a sense it feels that way, doesn't it? I mean, how is it possible? Like, you realize that 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 story in Numbers, 
is really a, a sort of foreshadowing of the problem that all of humanity would, would face and then the remedy that all of humanity would be given in Christ. You and I are snake bit by sin. Every single one of us is snake bit by sin. And the remedy is to look to Jesus. Now please, like, in fact, close your Bibles, stop taking notes, and please just listen to me. Listen to me, and let, I want you to know that I'm pleading with you right now to understand this. Because it breaks my heart when we don't. Our hope, our only hope is to trust in Jesus. And it's that simple. It's that simple. You say, well, I don't understand how that works. I don't either. I'm just being blunt with you. I mean, I understand the theological implications. I understand the substitutionary atonement of Christ. I think I have a pretty good grasp on on a firm orthodox soteriology. I mean, I get all that. But when it comes right down to it, you say, how could the Son of God live in my place and die in my place? And all I have to do is believe and all of my sins are washed away and I get eternity in the presence of God. How does that work, Pastor? I don't know. But it does. The same way... Somebody laying in their bed would have looked up at that woman in the camp and said, how in the world can looking at a bronze serpent on a pole possibly take the venom that's coursing through my veins and remove it and heal me of everything? And I think she would have said, I don't know, but it does. And I think that we have these questions like, how how do I reconcile myself to God? And you have the wise man that says, oh, let me tell you 12 steps that'll turn your life around and that'll get you right with God. Let me give you all these steps. And they give you all these steps, which none of us can really accomplish. And then we begin to say to ourselves, I don't think I'm a Christian. This breaks my heart. I don't think I'm a Christian. And we ask the, the philosopher, the debater, and they say, oh, well, you have to understand all the implications And you have to think through all of what it means to exist and what it means to be and what it means for God to be. And you have to understand all of how that applies to your life and all the implications of it in your life. And if you can just get straight on the isness of God and the isness of you and the being of you and the being of God, then eventually you'll figure it out and you'll get right with God. And we say, I can't grasp that. I don't think I'm really a Christian. And then there's the scribe. And this guy's the one I'm most upset with. Because the scribe, when Paul says in verse 20, where is the scribe? He's talking about the religious people. And here are these religious people, and you and I are saying, I want to I be a Christian. I want to be secure in my faith. And there are all these scribes, these Pharisees, modern day Pharisees, who are saying, well, good, if you want to be saved, if you want to know Christ, then... Do these things like you need, number one, to have a firm devotional life. It's interesting. Please don't. I love the Bible. I think you ought to spend as much time in the Bible as you possibly can. I believe it's God's inerrant, infallible word. I believe it's God breathed and has authority for all faith and practice in our life. So don't misunderstand what I'm getting ready to say. But please understand that for about a thousand years, at least, nobody had a Bible. So how did they live as Christians? I mean, somebody taught them the word and they applied it to their life and they just lived. I mean, but you have all these Pharisees that say, okay, now 
you need to come up with a reading plan. Read through your Bible every year. Come up with an additional devotional plan. Make sure you spend X amount of time in the Scriptures. And then, come up with a plan to be a person who prays properly. You need to have an active and exuberant prayer life. And then once you're done getting those things in order, make sure you get in a good small group. Because how in the world could anybody live without a small group? So get in a good small group and then make sure you come to Bible study at church. And anytime the doors are open, make sure you get to church and be there for worship. And by the way, make sure as well that you're listening to WAVA when you drive to work. And in the afternoon when you're not interested in that, then put on 91.9 and listen to some praise music so you can worship on the way home. And just do all these things. And by the way, you should also read Christian biographies and the bestseller that just came out and go to the, to the, the newest conference and do all these things. And if you can do all those things, then you must be a Christian. And then 99.9% of us, myself included, look in the mirror and say, by those standards, I'm not a Christian. But I want you to know that those are not the standards of Scripture for what it means to have eternal life. And as simple as it is, none of those things are bad things. Like don't don't leave here and go post on Facebook that your pastor said nobody should read their Bibles or go to small group anymore. Like that's not what I'm saying, but what I'm saying is if you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your savior, then you are saved. That's it. Don't add anything to Jesus Christ. For the love of God, stop torturing yourself thinking you're not a Christian because you haven't done something that somebody said you should do when Paul said the only thing necessary for you to enter into eternal life is to look to Jesus and be saved. Oh, I wish that we could just grasp that and enjoy the grace of God in our life and stop torturing ourselves over where we don't measure up. By the way, we don't. And we never will. And when we can just stop and rest in the grace of God, our lives can be transformed.